Go ahead and take out the Word of God and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 27. Continue our study through the book of 1 Samuel that we're calling the King We Need. Every week in worship, we open God's Word together and we move through a passage of Scripture together. Uh, and the reason we do that, it's not just because that's what you do in church and uh, we need some tips to make life a little bit better or easier. Uh, we do that because we are a people of the word. And what that means is God is telling a wonderful story that began in eternity past and will never end. And he has, in Jesus, folded those who believe in Jesus into that story and we open up the story week after week to see where we fit in the story, what, is, what God's telling us in the story. And that's why we do it. And so we spend 40, 45, 50 minutes sometimes in the story because we want to be a people of the book, people of the story. And one of the things we do before we look at the Word of God together is we stand in reverence to the Word. So if you would stand at this time, if Jesus, we might say if Jesus walked in the room, we wouldn't remain seated. Well, the reality is Jesus is in the room. And through His Word, He is speaking. And so in these moments, we stand in honor of him. I'm going to read verses 25 through 27. Hear the word of Christ. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Oh God, I pray today that we would not reject the king who is Jesus. That we would say, who else can save us but Jesus? We would give him our lives in surrender and faith today. And we would understand he is the king we need. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Isaac just told me that he loved me. These are words that are etched into my mind and heart. And they came from a text message from Danae one day out of nowhere. She was in the kitchen doing some things, and Isaac was about five years old at that time, and he just decided out of gratitude that he would walk up, wrap his arms around her neck, and say, Mom, I love you. Now, from that point on, that's a common occurrence from Isaac in our home, but up until that point, it had never happened. Isaac was born in Ethiopia, and uh, almost exactly 10 years ago, we adopted Isaac and Jonah. And, and many of you who are here today, and you uh, have adopted kids in your home, maybe you have foster kids in your home, you realize 
that it's really hard to get to that point. It's really hard to get to a point where that love is reciprocated. And from a parent's perspective, it doesn't make any sense to us. In many cases, we have set our love upon these children who are in very difficult circumstances. They're in circumstances where they don't even know and they don't understand love. And we spend time and money and resources, stress, anxiety to display love to them. And it just doesn't come back to us. It's not given in return. And often we wonder, why is that? Well, the reality is adoptive love can be scary. First of all, these people pursued me in love. I'm not in control of this situation. And deep down in our hearts, we want to be in control. We want to be in control of every relationship. And this is the most out of control relationship there could be. Someone just set their love upon me. And now there's someone there. I was alone. I was by myself. And now there's someone there. This someone, this family, these parents, they love me. But there's someone, I would rather be alone to myself, able to do whatever I want, and that can be scary. And many times in the lives of children who are in this situation, their lives are so marked by trauma, so, so marked by uh, situations of insecurity, and all of a sudden there's security, all of a sudden there's love. All of a sudden, their stability and they're thinking about their life before. They're thinking about the trauma and they're thinking, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be in this situation. I deserve to be back in the orphanage. I deserve to be alone. And in their minds, there's this turmoil. How can I be enough for this love? How can I do this? Adoptive love can be scary love. And it's exactly what we see in the story of Israel. Israel is God's adopted son. He adopted Abraham as his son, a moon worshiper. And he told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation like, like the sands of the sea, like the stars in the sky. The number of your family is going to be so large you will not be able to count it. And, and he adopts Abraham. And then Israel, later on in the story, is found in slavery in Egypt. And what does he do? He rescues them. So he adopts them and he rescues them as his adopted son. But Israel, even in light of such grace, is always saying, but we want to be in control of the story. We want to be in control of the narrative. Yes, you set your love upon us, but we're not in control. And so often you see in the story of the Bible, they even want to go back to slavery. They want to go back to the orphanage. They want to go back to Egypt. And that's what we've seen in 1 Samuel. God is going to give them the king they need, but they want to be in control of the story. They want to do whatever they want to do. And they've said to God, we don't want you as king. We don't want you as our father who's gracious and kind. We would rather be in control. And so you give us the king we want. A king like the nations. And God says, okay, I've pursued you. I've been kind. I've won your battles for you. I'm going to give you a king. And he, so he sends the prophet Samuel out. 
And Samuel finds a man named Saul who's chasing his father's donkeys. Saul doesn't want to be king. He's just a farm boy. And Samuel finds Saul and has anointed him king, has given him a picture of what kingship looks like. He's going to be a priest before the people of God. He's going to be a prophet for, before the people of God. But Saul seems to want no part of this. And yet Israel just keeps forcing the story. We want a king. We want a king. And when we get to verse 17 of chapter 10, Samuel has finally called the people together at a place called Mizpah. And in verse 17, this place is very significant in their history. They have gathered for worship there before, back in chapter 7, for confession of sin and repentance. And it's almost like Samuel is saying, okay, you want a king? You've wanted this for so long. Let's gather at Mizpah. There needs to be confession and repentance of sin first. And he gathers at a place also where we see in Judges where Israel had committed to kill off the Benjamites. The Benjamites were guilty of racial violence. And they were going uh, to be killed off. And they've gathered in this same place. And so as Samuel gathers Israel there, all of those memories are to be in their mind. This is a place of judgment. This is a place of confession and repentance. And those images are to come to their mind as they gather here because God wants to remind them, in asking for a king, you have sinned against me. In asking for a king like the nations, you really need to repent. You are guilty you are guilty of sinning against me. And he continues in verse 18, Samuel, as he stands up to preach, as he does so often throughout the book, and he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms who were oppressing you. God says over and over, I have rescued you. It all began in Egypt at the Exodus. This would have been Israel's 4th of July. This is their Independence Day that they celebrated over and over and over again. It was woven into their history. God's delivering them from slavery and bondage in Egypt. He had parted the Red Sea. They had walked across and he had crushed Pharaoh's armies before them. They couldn't get this out of their mind. They couldn't get this out of their history. It was to be imprinted on who they are. And it was a picture of God's grace. But in light of God's God's grace, notice verse 19, you have rejected your God. Now we say, he's about to give them a king, their first king. This should be a happy day. Why are you reminding us that this is rejection? And it's as if God just will not relent. The asking of a king is rejection of my grace, the kind of grace that you're ancestors experienced from Egypt. Notice as he continues, you have rejected your God who saves you from all calamities. He says, I have, I have over and over delivered you from kingdoms who have oppressed you, who have brought destruction and distress and anxiety on you. And yet you are saying today, set a king over us. Give us a king. Now remember a few chapters ago, Samuel explained what this king was going to do to them. He's going to oppress you. His kingship is going to be about him. And it's not going to be good to you. And yet over and over, they're like, give us a king. 
Give us a king. Okay, you're going to be slaves. Okay, we want to be slaves. Give us a king. I'm good. I'm kind. I've rescued you. I have a track record of grace. And you keep saying, set a king over us. And what Israel is deciding to do here, they're basically saying, give us another Pharaoh. Because we would rather be slaves than sons. The sort of love that you've set on us, God, oh, you're in control of that. It's sovereign love. We're not in control of that. We would rather be in control of the narrative. And so God says, now present yourself before the Lord. Samuel says, bring, all of, bring yourself up here. It's like you're in court. You're going to stand trial. Notice, by your tribes and by your thousands. Israel probably had millions of people standing before Samuel there. Millions. And and they would look around at the thousands of people and the tribes of Israel and, and what they should have done and said, look at what God has done. Look at this great nation that he promised Abraham. It's right before us. What are we doing? God is good to us. God is kind to us. But we want a king for ourselves. We want a king like the nations. And we see here what Samuel does is he, he, he puts Israel's rejection of God in a context of grace. A place of grace, a people of grace, scenes of grace before them, the reminder of the word of grace. It's all grace. And what God is saying to Israel, as you reject me as your king, you are rejecting my grace. And that's the essence of all sin, by the way. It's a rejection of grace. It's a rejection of God's goodness to us. God creates us and he puts us in a good world and he takes care of us in his world. And yet we want it to be about us. We want to say, this is my world. I'll do what I want to. And we reject his grace from the beginning. And then God gives us his son who dies for our sins and says, if you live under him, you'll know my goodness. And we reject that goodness. We reject grace from beginning to end. We, we reject God as a gracious king and we choose the harsh taskmaster of sin. It takes different forms, pharaohs, emperors, dictators. But at the end of the day, in our own hearts, we are constantly choosing a taskmaster of sin over grace. And here's something about us. You may not know about your heart. It is so twisted that you believe grace is bondage and sin is freedom. You believe that. That's why you make the decisions that you make. You want to fill what you think is freedom. When you make that decision to sin, to rebel, to do whatever you want to, it feels like freedom. Look at the power I have to make my own choice, to do whatever I want. It feels like freedom. And yet, grace feels like bondage. Sonship, surrendering to Christ, following him before God. It it feels like bondage. Why? I'm not alone anymore. I can't just do whatever I want to. But it's grace God's being, yeah, but it's somebody else who's there telling me what to do. Someone else I'm accountable to, even if I'm accountable to them in love. And I don't want that bondage. We choose slavery over sonship. And some of you are making that choice right now in your life. And I want to warn you, there's no grace. There's no grace in sin. 
All sin is going to do for you is teach you hard lesson after hard lesson. And you're going to endure consequence after consequence. As what do you do? You serve yourself and you push others away. And there's a day where you're going to look around and you're going to feel all alone. Right now, you think it's freedom and you think it's power to push your family away, to push your friends away, to push those who love you the most to tell you what you need to hear. It feels like freedom to push them away, but you're walking toward bondage and you don't even know where you're going. You just want to be alone and do whatever you want to. And there's freedom and grace. The, the, the relationship that we have with God, when we believe in Jesus, and we have this gracious relationship that we live in before God, there is grace even for our sin. When, when we realize we, we've sinned, it's not bondage because we're not pushing God away. We can run to God. And so often God brings our sin to our awareness to pursue us in grace. There's someone there, but he's coming after us in grace after grace after grace. And you can live in that freedom saying, yes, I know I'm a sinner. Yes, I know I've messed up and I've made mistakes and I've rejected Christ's authority. I know this. But when you know God in Christ, it's all freedom of grace because you can run to him and you know him, and there's someone there who loves you. And you can look back on all your consequences, the, the sin that you've endured and the consequence for them. And you can say, it's not judgment, it's grace. There's grace for sin. I'm one of those people who hate the GPS. Like, I hate it. I don't like turning that thing on. I don't like somebody talking to me in my car, telling me where to go and what to do. Just some, you know, weird voice out of nowhere, turn here. And I always, I'm not listening and I always turn the wrong way and end up. And I just like, turn the thing off, I'll figure it out. Kind of like Meredith Howard. He doesn't like the voice on the GPS. But, but it feels like bondage. I don't, want, I don't want someone telling me what to do. But you know what's bondage? The times I've ended up having no clue where I am, no clue where I'm going, recalculating, recalculating. <laughs> and that's bondage. Lost to myself in my own world, my own directions, my own plan. You know what's freedom? Just let the thing tell you where to go and just enjoy the drive. Some of you feel like Knowing who you are in Christ and where you are and where you're headed because God said his gracious love, you feel like that's bondage. And what you need to do today is just trust God. Relax. Let him tell you where to go and what to do and who you are and where all of this is headed. There's grace for you today and it's freedom to just enjoy the ride. Notice verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. Again, a picture of grace. And the tribe of Benjamin, the least of the tribes, if people are thinking about kingdoms here, notice this kingdom was taken by Lot. And so what they do is they gather everybody together and they begin to cast lots. Now, this was a way in which God determined his will, and he did so among the people to prove that there was no human manipulation. And so he says, I'm going to pick a king here. I'm going to bring Samuel up, but just so you know, Samuel's not uh, manipulating this election. There's no collusion here. Uh, he, he, he casts lots. 
and the lot falls on the tribe of Benjamin. And notice he brought the tribe of Benjamin up. So who's going to be king? Well, the lot fell upon Benjamin. He brings Benjamin up to the front. And then the clan of the Matriots, which was the clan that Saul was in. And so he brings them up by lot. No, no human involvement here. It's narrowing down to notice. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by lot. So it narrows down to Saul, his family, his father. But notice, notice this. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Isn't that interesting? Monument, millions of people standing. Who's going to be our king? Monumental day. CNN's there. Fox News is there. Everybody's tuned in. Who's going to be the king? Saul, the son of Kish. Saul, the son of Kish. Is Saul here? Where is Saul? How crazy is that? You're going to be appointed king and you're nowhere to be found. It's like someone who won the lottery and you just say their name over and over. It's that awkwardness among the people of God. And we're to remember the story of the donkeys. Remember Saul goes to find his father's donkeys and can't find them? It's, it's to Israel, as they read this for the first time, that's the story they, they're thinking of. You're looking for a donkey to be your king, and he's nowhere to be found. Notice the text continues. So they inquired of the Lord, is there a man still to come? Now, notice how intent they are. It, it, at this moment, they should throw their hands up and said, okay, this isn't a good idea. We've picked a man who's incompetent to even show up at his commencement. We don't need him to be king. But notice what they're saying. Okay, then pick somebody else. Pick somebody else to be king. Is there still a man to, be co uh, to come? And, and notice, this is a theme throughout 1 Samuel. There was a man. There was a man. There was a man. There was a man. And the point is, every time they looked to someone to lead them, that leader was flawed. And it's the story of the whole Bible. Is there another man to come? Is there another man to come? We have Noah. We have Moses. We have David. We have Solomon. We have the prophets. But is there another man? Is there another man? Is there another man? A leader in Israel can't be found. And it is pulling us to the king we need who is Jesus. Is there another man? And the Lord said, behold, he was hidden among the baggage. Now, Saul realizes what's going on. Maybe he saw the lots sort of trending his way. And he got nervous. He left a ceremony, and he's out in the storage units. He, he doesn't want anybody to know where he is. Some folks translate this, the trash pile. He, he's out in the baggage. He's where the trash is, the equipment, the supplies. He's nowhere to be found. And there's this vague truth that's not so vague, and it's that no man can replace God as king. Saul can't find his father's donkeys. He's a bad shepherd. Saul didn't even know who Samuel was, the most famous prophet of the day. Saul didn't understand Israel's worship. Saul refused to prophesy in his hometown. 
And now he's hiding from his appointment as king. And all of this points to the fact that this is going to be a failed kingship. Saul's going to be a failure. Why are you forcing this? Notice the text continues. Then they ran and took him from there. And so instead of going, this moron doesn't even know what's going on. They go out to the garbage heap. And they say, we want you to be our king. We still want you to be our king. And when they stood among the people, notice, he was taller than any of the people from shoulders upward. Now, there's some significance in that because most of Israel's kings weren't that tall. But you think about men like Goliath. You think about pagan kings. And what God is saying to Israel, you want a king like the nations. Well, here he is. He looks good. He's a nice looking guy, but he's dumb as a rock. He didn't even know what's going on. He's got his looks going for him, but so do the pagan kings. And Samuel said to all the people, verse 24, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? And this is the first time where we refer to, to God as, as picking or ordaining this king. But we also have to understand God does it because Israel wants it, and it's according to their wants. It's according to appearance. You want a king who appears to be a good king, but it's only appearance. And so God's going to give you this man as king. Notice, there is none like him among all the people. There, there, he, no one looks this good. And all the people shouted, long live the king. The point here is you're chasing him. You're chasing him like a donkey. Just like Saul chasing his father's donkeys. And what do you have to do to a donkey? You find him, put the thing around his neck, and what do you have to do? You have to drag him. Drag him back. And that's what's going on with Saul. He's like a donkey. He's like a mule. And it's all about appearance. But at the end of the day, his point here is God is still in control of all of this. God's going to use your desires for appearance eventually to rescue you from the Philistines. And so God's going to use up your sin for his good. He's going to leverage your sin and stupidity for your good. Isn't it amazing that God does that for us? And that's the point here. God is sovereign at all times despite our sin and stupidity. God micromanages the details of this story from the lots to the fact they can't find him to the fact that God has to point him out to the fact that he's taller than everyone else. God has orchestrated and micromanaged all of these details to say to his people, I'm still sovereign. You can't even find a king on your own. You can't even get someone to serve you as king. I've got to do it for you. God is sovereign despite our sin and stupidity. Now, that's a lesson we all have to learn. Because just like Israel, we are constantly chasing bad kings. Think back through your life where you have, you have set those things up in your life and you have, you've allowed them to just rule you. Whether it's people. Maybe people you knew were not good for you. But you allowed them to dictate your life. What about stuff that you allowed to rule your life? 
What about circumstances that you pursued and you weren't going to be content until you arrived in a certain place and it just ruled you? It ruled your life and you made decision after decision for these things that were just stupidity and so often sin. And, and we've all woken up time and time and time again chasing these bad kings and going, this was so stupid of me. Well, the reality is God's still sovereign. And what God is proving to all of us is you are incompetent to rule your life. And anyone else is. You are incompetent. All other kings are bad kings because they're not sovereign. God is sovereign. He controls every molecule in the world. He controls every sentence in the story, every comma, every period, every footnote. He is writing the story and he is sovereign over it all. And, and his sovereignty will never be canceled out by your stupidity. You can't even pick the right size shirt at JCPenney's. You, you come up on a lane of traffic and you're like, which one should I choose? And you pick the wrong one most often. Unless you have GPS, Waze, tells you which way to go. But you can't even make decisions like that. Because you don't know the future. You don't know everything. You're not sovereign. And some of you are sitting here today and you're thinking, I have wrecked my life. Some of you are thinking, I married the wrong person. Just out of sin. Stupidity. Other people told me not to, but I did it anyway. Some of you made the wrong career choice. And you're looking back every day that you get in that car and you drive to that office and you're saying, why did I do this? Why did I make this decision? Whether you have a lot of money or not. Some of you made great career decisions when it comes to money, but you drive every day to work saying, why am I doing this? I'm wasting my life. Why am I here? And you look back over selfish ambition and sin, and sometimes it's just stupidity. Guess what? God's still sovereign. And he's going to use it all for your good. For your good. And sometimes we tell stories like that, and we look back on our life, and we say, God can still give me joy here, but it's leftover joy. If I would have just made the right decision, I would have more joy. And that's not true. It's not true. You are who you are today because God has you there. And he's been sovereign over every day to get you there. And your sin did not take him off the throne. And there are specific lessons that you are learning right now that you could not learn at any other job. There are specific lessons that you're learning right now that you could not learn married to anybody else. And God has designed that grace and joy just for you. That specific forgiveness. You may have to go to him and say, I've made a mess out of my life and it's my sin. Will you forgive me? And you wouldn't know that forgiveness unless you were in that situation. And he's designed that forgiveness just for you because he's sovereign. You didn't cancel out his sovereignty with your stupidity. You didn't. You, you never will and you never can. The, the wisdom that you've learned and you're turning and you're talking to other people and you're saying, don't do it the way that I did it. They would never know that wisdom if you didn't have to be a fool. And, and it's just, God is sovereign over it all. It's not secondhand joy. It's not secondhand grace. 
It is God's joy and it is God's grace in that moment and it's just for you. He's always been sovereign over the story. Notice we continue. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. Now, this is very significant because this is the first time Saul's kingship is referred to as a kingdom. So far, he's called him a prince. He's called him a leader. And it's like God will, God's pushing this story back. I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to give you another chance. All right. I'm going to tell you what a king should be in Israel. And he wrote the duties and rights of the king in a book, and he laid it up before the Lord. This is the law of the king. What we see going on here with the prophet is a covenant ceremony with Israel. What God is doing with the prophet is he is wedding his people to their king. This is the king you want. Okay, there is a law that he must obey. And in that law, he has to love you. He has to love you no matter what. And he has to be a king surrendered to the law. And he is bound to the people with the law. And that's good news for us, right? God's kings cannot rule however they want. God's plan for his people is to be ruled by a king who surrenders to his law. That's when we read in the Psalms. And King David says, oh, I delight in the law of the Lord. Saul doesn't even know what the law of the Lord is. It's probably the first time he's ever seen the law of the Lord. And now it's in his hands and he has to obey it. But David says, I meditate on it day and night. It's like gold. It's like silver. The law of the Lord is like honey. And when we get to David, we find a king who loves the law of the Lord. But even David would fail to obey the law of the Lord. And when David disobeys the law of the Lord, Israel is destroyed. And so the king has to obey the law for the people of God. And that's why we're being led to another man. Another man. A man who will say, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And when Jesus says those words, you think, obedience for me. But you also think he's a good king. He's a good king who obeys the law of the Lord. And that means he loves me according to the law of the Lord. And notice we continue. Then Samuel sent away all the people, each one to his own home. And Samuel also went to his home in Gibeah. And so, or Saul. So all the people, notice this, this is significant. All the people are still in submission to Samuel, the prophet, the word of the Lord. And even Saul Saul's not the ultimate authority. The word of God is. And he obeys the word of the Lord. And he went home with men of valor whose heart God had touched. There are men that are inspired by the spirit of God, empowered by the spirit of God to protect the king, to serve the king. So there are those who are serving the king, but notice there are also those who reject the king, worthless, useless men. And they're saying, how can this man save us? He couldn't even show up today, guys. You know, 15 minutes early is on time. We had to go find him in a trash heap. And now he's our king, a Benjamite? Really? How can this man save us? And they despised him. They hated Saul. And they brought him no presents or offerings. There's no homage paid to this man. 
but he held his peace. He held his peace. Now, Saul's passivity here points to God's patience. Because in these last few verses, we see a picture of exactly what Israel is doing to God. God has bound himself to them in his law. But Israel says, how can, how can he save us? How can God save us? Exodus, deliverance, deliverance, deliverance. How can he save us? We don't owe him anything. Give us another king. And they are despising and they are rejecting God. But God wants to remind us here, I am still committed to you according to my word. I am committed to you according to my promises. God is telling Israel, no matter how you treat me, I am still your king. And I still love you. And I'm still committed to you because of my word. And there is a legality here with the king and the covenant and the law that is necessary. It's also why when we talk about marriage as a picture of the gospel, it displays the gospel. The legality of marriage is very, very important. Some of us here today, we think, oh, that's just a paper. Go down to the courthouse, get the paper. It's not just a paper. Because what you do is you say, I love this person enough. I'm going to legally bind myself to them. Legally. Before the law, no matter what it costs me, taxes, insurance, I love you enough to bind myself to you legally. And I want to say this with all grace and mercy, because we live in a culture where this is very, very popular. Cohabitation is not a reflection of the gospel. It's not. If you don't love each other enough to legally bind yourself to one another, that's not love. It's not the covenant love of the gospel. And maybe some of you are in that situation. We would love to walk you toward marriage. We would love to, to help explain what we're talking about there. We would love to minister to you. We would love, to, maybe it's somebody else you need to marry. We would, we would love to deal with that situation. Why? Because we're a church that believes that marriage is a reflection of the gospel. And a part of marriage is saying, I'm legally bound to you and I ain't going nowhere. I can't go nowhere. I love you. Why would I want to go anywhere else? I'm here. And what happens when you are bound in that covenant is this. The covenant, the legality of the covenant begins to dictate the marriage. See, some of you, you think love is what drives the marriage. Love comes and goes. Some days you wake up and you love that person. You love them. And some days you wake up and there's toothpaste on the mirror. And you don't love them. And then you know what happens? You become unloving. And then, who knows what else, other conversations happen from that point on. You go from toothpaste to car insurance to all of a sudden you're ready to walk away. But guess what? I loved you enough to legally bind myself to you. I can't go anywhere. I love you that much. And I'm here. That's what God does here with Israel. Is he legally binds himself through his king to his people. And he says, my king can't go anywhere. 
You reject him, you despise him, you hate him, he ain't going nowhere. God binds himself to his people by his law. And in Jesus, we have been bound together by the highest law in the world, God's law. God is legally committed to us to love us no matter what according to his law. And all of the, all of the stipulations of God's law have been met for you. The contract, the covenant, in covenant love with God, God has met all of the stipulations. God requires, according to his law, perfect righteousness. And guess what he does? He, doesn't, he, he, he sets forth the standard and he says the law is righteousness and then Jesus fulfills your half of the bargain for you. His righteousness, when you believe in him, is credited to you. You can't be righteous. And all the violations of the law have been covered by the blood of Christ. God enters a contract, a covenant with you in the gospel and says, you're going to mess up. You're going to violate my law. You violated it and you will violate it. And you will reject it over and over. Guess what? All the violations of the covenant have been covered in the blood of Christ. It is though you've never violated it. It is though you've always held up your end of the bargain. The covenant drives the love. And for God to turn his back on the Christian, the one who says, I trust in Jesus' blood, I trust in Jesus' righteousness, God is committed to you legally according to his law, the highest law. And for God to turn away from the covenant he has made with you in Jesus would, for, for, would be for him to say, Jesus' blood is of no value. If God ever forsook you, he would be spitting on the blood of Christ, and he ain't going to do that. If God ever forsook you, it would be him saying, Jesus is not enough to fulfill the law. Jesus ain't good enough. It would be spitting in the face of Jesus, and he ain't going to do that. He loves Jesus more than anything. And in Jesus, he loves you more than anything. And he has loved you enough to bind himself according to his law to you. But the reality is, for some of us here today, that scares us to death. That scares you to death. That anyone would make a covenant to love you. And to say to you, I can't go anywhere. You can't go anywhere. That's scary. It's scary. And for some of us to know that God loves us that way, it's scary. Because yes, it's love, but it's somebody. It's somebody who loves me. And here's another thing about God's love. To love you infinitely, God has to know you infinitely. God knows you more than you know yourself. He knows your sin better than you know yourself. You're not gonna wake up one day and go, I hope God didn't find out about that because he's not gonna love me anymore. He knew about it and still loved you. There's no skeletons in the closet that are gonna come out and he's gonna walk away. He knows your sin better than you because he died for your sin. He knows what your sin cost on the cross, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, all of God's righteous fury poured out upon him. He knows your sin better than you do. He knows the consequence of your sin. And yet he has pursued you in grace and he has bore the brunt of this. He loves you. He is committed to you. And others of you are here today and you're saying, that, that kind of love scares me. I want to be in control of it. 
I want to tell God how much he can love me. I want to be this good and he can love me this much and, and I want to be in control of it. But, but others of you here today, you, you say, this is amazing love where he has bound himself and he can't go anywhere. It's too good to be true. I, I've shared the gospel with people and that's what they've said. You mean, that's just too good to be true. God, God just forgives me of all my sin. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've thought. You don't know the things I've said. Yeah, it's true. Jesus died for it all. His righteousness covers it all. And, and, and you think, how could I pay for that? Well, you can't. You can't. How can I be enough? You can't. You can't be enough. That's what makes it love and the freedom of knowing, yes, I've sinned and I will sin and I will be high maintenance, but he ain't going anywhere. And God wants you to understand today that his love is not something you can control and he's not asking you for to, to be enough. What he's asking for you today is to simply hold your hands up and say, in light of what you've done for me in Christ, I love you. Let's pray.